If you're visiting with us, uh, we're glad you're here. Let me extend a special welcome to you. Uh, Our vision as Chillicothe Bible Church is to be a loving community of devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are walking with God daily, worshiping Him faithfully, serving others with their God-given spiritual gifts, and developing evangelistic relationships with those who don't know Christ. And we've been looking at the book of Acts together the last uh, several weeks. Uh, we got all the way up through chapter 7 last week uh, at Stephen's speech and his martyrdom uh, before the Sanhedrin. And we're going to take a detour for the next several weeks from the book of Acts uh, because we need to deal with something in our community. Uh, as part of being a loving community, every now and then we, we need to pull off to the side of the road and fix something. Uh, we, as, as some of you know, and maybe more of you than I would think, uh, some of you know we've had a little bit of disharmony around here lately as a church, and people that we deeply love, some of them have decided to stop attending here and being part of our fellowship. And that is deeply grieving both to me as a pastor and to our elder board. And so we have uh, brought in uh, Pastor Chuck Warren and uh, Mr. Ron Porter from the Great Lakes District and asked them to talk with uh, some of us. Uh, And they have asked me to enter into a coaching relationship with them along with our elders, which we are going to do. Uh, But they have also asked me this morning to talk about our unity as a church because our unity as a church is one one of the very important priorities biblically for us as a church. And we want to do a better job, both me as your pastor and the elder board as elders, we want to do a better job of promoting unity and harmony in our relationships. And so we're going to look at what the Bible has to say this morning about unity in the body of Christ, and about building up our relationships with one another. And I'll just be honest with you, okay? I, I, would re- I told one of the elders I'd rather have my t- one of my toes pounded flat with a wooden hammer than get into these kinds of issues. Uh, I, I am not by nature somebody who enjoys conflict, uh, and I don't want to deal with this ungraciously. Uh, because this sermon, frankly, is about grace, and it would be very ungracious to give an ungracious sermon about grace, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but we need grace to overflow in our relationships with one another, and so we want to talk about this, and this is, this is not the easiest or favorite sermon I've ever given. I'd rather, those of you who know me, who've been here a while, know I'd rather preach the gospel than do anything else, okay? But we need to pull off to the side and do this here. You know, when you get a hole in a tire, you got to get off to the side of the road and patch it, and um, and then you can go for go forward. So we're going to do this this week. Uh, next week we're going to um, talk about uh, another issue, and then we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to see Rick Shoup come in from Jordan and talk to us about his ministry there, and then we're going to start about a about an eight week series together uh, called the Peacemaker. And I'm looking for some of the men in our church to step forward and lead that uh, for us about making peace and building healthy relationships and resolving conflict in a healthy way. Uh, Because we have a problem. Not me, not the elders, but as a church, we have a problem. Uh, And that includes me and the elders, right? We have a problem 
as a church. So we need to deal with this, all right? So I want to look, if you've got your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, okay? Follow along as I read this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that our focus as a church would be on the things that unite us which are broader and deeper and higher and much more significant than those things that can drive wedges. And Father, I pray this morning that your grace would overflow to each one here, including me, including our elders, and that uh, we would demonstrate grace to one another and love each other and be united as a church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this passage is... Simple to understand and hard to apply, okay? Uh, I'll just tell you that from the from the get-go. Uh, Paul starts off by saying that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And he is reminding his readers when he does that, that he is uh, writing them this letter from prison. He's not being figurative. He's literally in jail. And the reason that he's in jail is because he has been passionate about the gospel and passionate about sharing Christ with others and passionate about living for Christ in a way that draws attention to Christ but also draws attention to him. And as a result of that, there has been a conspiracy against him and he has gotten arrested by the Roman authorities and he's gotten thrown into prison. And eventually, he's going to be executed in prison for the sake of the gospel. And so he calls himself a prisoner uh, because, uh, for the Lord because he would not be silenced over what he believed and preached, even if doing so meant losing his freedom and ultimately his life for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he's a prisoner for the Lord. The things that he is suffering, he is suffering because he is related to and following and obeying Jesus Christ. And so he reminds them of where he is. And because of that strong conviction that has put him where he is, his words have some authority and some authenticity to them as he's about to tell them what he's about to tell them. In other words, this is not just idle words spoken by a guy who has paid no cost for his faith. He's about to tell them some things that are, that are corrective and challenging. But he's saying them as someone who has lived them out and lived them out significantly enough that he has wound up in prison for it. And so, th so these, are, these are not idle words that he has. And when Paul talks, about, he, Paul talks next about a calling, he says, look, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's talking about their salvation. And we are, we are biblical Christians here, Right? And we know that what Paul says is true. Our salvation is a gift. It's something we receive, right? Not something that we can earn or deserve or merit in some way. We can't pile up enough good deeds 
that somehow we merit God's approval and salvation. We don't. It's a gift that we receive. Because we all know that what the Bible says is true, that if God gives us all justice, then Katie bar the door. We're in a heap of trouble. Because all of us, if we get what we deserve from God, deserve to be separated from him in hell for all eternity. And that's the worst news that I could ever possibly share with anybody. Hey, by the way, uh, you think life is unfair? Well, let me tell you what's really bad about life. It isn't all the little negative, nasty things that happen to you. It's the fact that if you don't repent and turn to the living Christ before you die, you will be in hell for all eternity. That is not a comfortable message to share with people. But Paul says, look, you have been called by God into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We do not get what we deserve. God grants us salvation as a gift. And because he's given us that gift, we need to live in light of the fact of what God has done for us. So let's just, let's just stop for a second, back up, and think about what we have received as people who have been called by God, as, as Paul writes elsewhere, he who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What have we received? Here's a couple of things. Who has the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God who is an, an, an inher- a deposit guaranteeing our final inheritance in heaven? We do. Uh, who is adopted by the God of the universe into his family for all eternity? and granted a status on the same level as his only begotten son. We are. Who has had every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit paid for with the blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God? We have. Who are the people baptized together into the body of Christ and given relationships with new brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and care for us and minister to us? We have. Who has been given spiritual gifts to serve one another to show the world that we belong to God? Well, we have. Who has been given the life-saving, transforming message of the gospel, which is the only means by which men and women may, for, may receive forgiveness of their sin and a restored relationship with God? Well, we have. Who has an inerrant Bible through which God's Spirit speaks to us about himself, and his character, and the way he wants us to live so that we can glorify him and live with him rewarded and blessed for all eternity and to get us through blessing and pain both here in this life. We have. Who will live eternally in a resurrection body, eating from the tree of life in a new heaven and a new earth, directly in the presence of God and and living in a world in which righteousness dwells and there is no more mourning or crying or suffering or pain or death because the old order of things has passed away. Who has that? We do. So Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling which you have received. And out of appreciation for the marvelous gifts that God has bestowed on us, and he, you know, Paul uses the word lavished, okay? I want you to picture like a German chocolate cake, you know, with like layers that are about that thick, okay? And in between the layers is like two inches of that coconut gooey frosting, and then on top of it is just 
about three inches of stuff that just kind of covers it over, okay? It's just kind of this gooey, chocolatey, yummy mess, right? And you go, what is that? That's lavish frosting and lavish cake, right? Okay. And Paul uses that word to describe the blessings in, in, in Ephesians 1. He says that he has lavished on us. He has just laid it on there thick, okay? And when you stop to think about all of the things that God has given us, he has lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, Paul says. And when you stop to think about that, our response to that ought to be one of appreciation and wanting to live in a way that is worthy of the blessings that we have received, right? Um, when I got married, my wife thought I was the most wonderful man in the world, right? Now, she learned differently, <laughs> all right? But the fact is, is that her faith and trust and belief in me made me want to live better than I was, okay? And it's the same way in our relationship with God, that as we look at how God has done so much for us, we ought to want to live better than we do, right? And so Paul's going to make some suggestions for how we can, how we can live out in our own relationships with people the kind of grace that we have received. Because God has given us his grace, right? I just listed a whole bunch of stuff, right? Who has an inerrant Bible? We do. Who has the Spirit of God? We do. Who is baptized by one Spirit into the body of Christ? We are. Who has a home in heaven before the face of God? We do. Who has access to the tree of life? We do. Who will receive a crown of glory if we have been faithful to share the gospel and to uh, long for the appearing of the Son of God? We will. All of these blessings that we have ought to motivate us to live in a way that honors Christ, right? And so Paul's going to talk about that and give us some things that, we, that, that demonstrate in practical ways that we are living in a way that demonstrates appreciation for the grace we have received, that we receive grace from God and so we extend it to other people. And so he says, first of all, be completely humble. Now, I don't know about you, but I think humility is probably a little hard to define. You know, it's kind of one of those things that's like, well, I know it when I see it. I don't really know how to get my arms around it. but um, And sometimes you, you think, well, that's a really humble person because they're always being self-deprecating. Well, not, not really. Um, that may be just somebody with kind of a bad self-image, right? Uh, that's not necessarily what humility looks like. Uh, or somebody who you can't compliment them. You know, they say, you know, hey, I really appreciated that when you did that. And they're like, oh, no, I'm horrible. Yeah. That's not humility. What's humility look like? Humility means that you consider others and their needs and their desires first. It's not that you never think about your needs and your desires, but that you consider someone else's needs and someone else's desires before your own. That you prioritize, in other words, somebody else's needs and desires ahead of yours. So that it's not just me and me and me at the top of every list, right? Um, those of you who uh, have been in that cat and dog theology with Rick, some good stuff in there, 
you know, um, the, uh, you know, the difference between cats and dogs is that a, a dog looks at you and he sees that you feed him and love him and pet him and brush him and name him and stroke him and give him a bed and he thinks you must be God. Okay, you do the same stuff for a cat, feed him, water him, brush him, love him, name him, give him a bed. And he thinks, I must be God. (laughs) Right? Because look at how the people worship me, you know. Uh, and, And sometimes we get that way with ourselves and in our relationships with people. Um, people serve us, and we think, well, of course they serve me. I deserve it. I'm God. Okay? Um, that's not humility, just in case you're curious, all right? A humble person is someone who does like Jesus. Remember how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if I get my way on this, God... Uh, I don't want to do this. However, not my will, but yours be done. Now, why did Jesus pray that way? He had a will of his own, because remember, he said, not my will, but yours be done. But he was looking to the interest of other people, chiefly his father, but also you and I. Hebrews says, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before Jesus? Look around. You're it. Okay? We're it. We are the joy that was set before Jesus. And he considered the will of his Father in our need as more important than his own desires and his own freedom from suffering. And we're so glad he did. Amen? That is a humble person, someone who has their own desires, but who is willing to put them second to the will of God and the needs of other people. Okay? Second thing that characterizes us if we are living a life worthy of our calling, Paul says, is that we are gentle. Now, gentle does not mean weak. Okay? It doesn't mean that when you, it's, it's not, you know, sometimes we think of a gentle person as someone who, you know, just kind of when they take your hand to shake it, you know, they kind of give you one of those kind of just kind of scary handshakes, you know. Just, it's like, where are the calluses on your hands? Have you ever done any work in your life? You know, um, uh, and just kind of, just kind of, just kind of a mousy person, okay. That is not the biblical idea of gentleness. They're just kind of weak and wimpy and kind of gooey, okay? Uh, That is not biblical gentleness. In fact, biblically, the word refers to the idea of power under control, okay? And it's used uh, actually outside of the Bible, the same word, of a stallion. Uh, Now, I've never owned a stallion. We had a couple geldings when I was growing up, but stallion is a different um, type animal, uh, than a gelding or a filly or a mare. And they have tremendous power. And they have uh, all that testosterone coursing through their body, and it uh, creates in them just kind of red-eyed desires uh, all over the place, okay? But the idea is is that 
um, is that you, you have this stallion who is so powerful and so muscular and who could stomp you to death, frankly, with all of their power, but who is so gentle that even a little child can get on his back and ride him and tell him where to go, and he just responds. That is biblical gentleness. The idea of power under control. That you keep your emotions in check. And that you don't lash out at people. You don't let them feel the full force of your thunder. Okay? Now, it's, not, it's also not somebody who never gets angry, by the way. Biblically, a gentle person is not someone who never gets angry. It's someone who, if they get angry, it's angry in the right way about the right things and to the right degree. Okay? Because God gets angry, right? But sometimes our anger is not done in a biblical way, right? And we're to be gentle with one another. We're to keep, our, keep our, all of our power under control. Under whose control? Our control? No. Under the Holy Spirit's control. So that even if we're angry about something or with someone, that we are keeping our power there under control of the Holy Spirit so that we are angry in the right way, to the right degree, and for the right reason. Not just angry all the time, because that's the other thing that gentle is not, right? You ever met anybody like that? They're just mad at everybody, you know? And you kind of feel like, man, what happened to you? You know, um, I mean, seriously, did you put salt on your cereal this morning? What was the deal? <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, what is the problem? You know, somebody put cayenne in your toast. I mean, what's the what what gives? Um, and and they're just angry all the time. That's not a gentle person either. And neither is a gentle person someone who never gets angry, but someone who has their emotions under the control of the Holy Spirit and who responds to people in a way that they would like to be responded to if it was them. Okay? Uh, the third thing that characterizes us, according to Paul, if we um, are living a life worthy of our calling is patience, which Paul explains further, I think, by saying, bearing with one another in love. A patient person, is, in other words, is not someone who just kind of passively sits there and grits their teeth and says, I'm going to endure this circumstance. <clears throat> okay? You're just going to gut it out and get through. I'm going to be unhappy about it the entire time, but I'm going to be patient. No, that's not patience. Patience is more than simply tolerating your circumstances or somebody. It's the active extension of God's grace flowing through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this, this characteristic, I think, is really, really tough. It takes a, a huge amount of Christian maturity in Christ to be patient in this kind of a way, to extend people grace. And I, the only way I have figured out how to do this, how to be patient in a biblical way, is to do this is to take a step back and look at myself in light of God and to say, God, biblically speaking, realistically speaking, practically speaking, I'm a mess, right? 
I have flaws here and 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 here, here you know, and I have to take off my shoes to get the rest. Okay. Um, and yet you extend me grace and love and patience. And, and, and God doesn't get to a point in our relationships with us where he says, that's it, you're done. I've forgiven you for that sin for the last time. Whack. Smash you like an ant, you know. Um, <laughs> God doesn't do that. Okay, and aren't we glad? Amen? He is patient with, with us, right? In fact, the Bible says that God is patient not just with us as believers, but with the entire world. First, uh, First Peter says, no, I'm sorry, it's Second Peter, where, where Peter says, Dear friend, God is not slow, as some count slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Right? Why doesn't God judge evil fully and finally in the world right now? Because he is patient with people, wanting them to come to repentance. And he doesn't want to bring judgment any sooner than he has to because he knows that there are lots of people who will yet come to Christ if he will be patient and just wait for them. And God treats us that way. He is patient with us. I used to have a terrible, horrible temper. Ask my mother, she'll tell you. Okay. Um, It still flares every now and then. But God has been patient with me and forgiven me and worked with me and worked through me by his Holy Spirit so that by God's grace, very rarely does that happen anymore. Okay, Why? Because God has been patient with me and he has forgiven me more times than I could count. He has forgiven me, sometimes for the same sin, 70 times 7, right? without limit. As often as we come to God and say, hey, uh, Lord, screwed up again. Sorry. He is patient with us. And he loves us. And Paul says that we need to extend the same grace that we receive from God. We need to extend the same grace to one another. That recognize that God isn't, just as he isn't finished with us yet, he isn't finished with everybody else yet either, right? And the same grace that we want to receive from God and want to receive from others uh, when we're in conflict with them, we have to extend to others, right? That's what the golden rule is all about, right? Treat everybody else how you want to be treated. And extend patience to each other. You know, we had an expression growing up, in my house, we we called it. Said we said, "Hey man, cut me some slack." In other words, give me a little bit of of rope here, okay? Don't just keep the line tight with me all the time. Cut me some slack, okay? And that's the idea of being patient. That you cut one another some slack, and because you're in the body of Christ and you're a family, and you want to receive from each other the same grace. And so you, you be, make it your habit and practice to extend it to people you need it from, right? Uh, you don't burn bridges you need to walk over later, right? Um, 
And now the center verse of this passage is verse 3. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more later. But basically, Paul is elaborating here on this whole idea of bearing with one another. Making every effort means doing all that we can, all that is in our power to maintain relationships of love and unity between ourselves and everyone else that we are part of the body of Christ with and that we interact with out on 29 and that we live next door and that two that we work with, that we live with. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because we're a family. And we don't allow issues to go undealt with or to remain unforgiven. But we make every effort, even if it's hard and nobody likes confrontation, most of all me. Nobody likes it, either to be the recipient of it or to do it. But we have to do that sometimes because we want to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, we don't burn relational bridges with people because someday we may have to cross over that bridge ourselves. And so we make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, the last, last three verses here, verses 4 to 6, these are Paul's exhortation to us to remember the things that bind us together. What are the things that bind us together? Uh, that are higher and wider and deeper and of lasting, even eternal, significance versus the things that separate us from each other sometimes. According to Paul, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. And he means that like it or not, or even like everyone else you're in the body with or not, we're part of the same family. Um, everyone who is in Christ is part of the same unit, the same organism, the body of Christ. And the same Holy Spirit indwells each of us. Right? There is one body, the body of Christ. One Spirit. Same Holy Spirit indwells us all. Um, There is one hope. In other words, how many ways of salvation are there? One. How do we get to salvation? Through the same faith with each other, right? Um, it's not that, it's not that um, Bill Osler came to faith in one way, and I get a different way, and my way is better. <laughs> okay, we have one hope, right? Fill in whatever way you want, you know, whoever's name you think fits in there. But we have one hope that we were called to. There's one salvation, one spirit that's given to all. There is one body that we are all part of, okay? Um, In verse 5, he says, there is one Lord. In other words, there's only Jesus to serve and worship and honor. Uh, We all serve the same Jesus, and he is the head of all of us. All of us. There's one faith. We all express faith in the same person. And because of that, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Every one of us who has expressed faith in Christ is my brother and my sister. A few weeks ago at our men's group, I was talking about um, differences that people get into in theology. You know, and we have essential things at the center of the bullseye. And these are the things that you must believe to be a Christian. And then there are central things around that. Okay? Things that uh, make our determination about um, whether or not we're going to maybe continue to fellowship in a particular group of people. Because these are things that we hold to be really important. That's why we have a statement of faith that differs from other fellowships. But we try to keep the essential things the essential things and the central things central and not confuse the two. And then there are also peripheral things, things that just don't matter, uh, things that Paul calls the things indifferent, right? Um, that shouldn't make any difference what, whether we um, whether we fellowship with somebody, whether we, um, you know, people who, who hold the different views on peripheral issues should be able to fellowship in the same church and, and enjoy each other's company and not be in conflict. Um, but there's important. It's important to keep in mind those those distinctions and not swallow everything up into either peripheral. You know, in other words, nothing matters. Whatever you believe is okay. That's not true, because there is one faith. Or make everything essential. In other words, you have to agree with me on everything, or else um, we can't be brothers and sisters. That's not true. Okay. Um, because, um, I mean, just to give one example, we don't baptize infants at this church, okay? You know what I call the people who do? They're in Christ and believe in a, in a, uh, a Christ who came, lived a perfect life, was crucified on the cross for our sins, died, and, was, and rose again from the dead, but they baptized babies. You know what I call them? Brother and sister. There's one faith that we all accept. And it's those essential things that ought to bind us together and unite us and hold us together. There is one faith. Uh, there is one baptism. And I think by that, uh, I don't think he means simply water baptism. I think he means one baptism by the Holy Spirit that unites us into the body of Christ and makes us brothers and sisters together. Uh, there is um, one family of God, and we are all baptized by the Holy Spirit into that family. Verse 6 goes on, and it says, There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, there is only one God, right? And he is the Father of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. All of us. He is all of our fathers. We're a family who is overall, in other words, rules everybody. He's dad to everybody. Who is through all, in other words, who um, works in everybody's life. And who is in all, who indwells us by his Holy Spirit, if we are his child. Right? And don't miss this, you know. Just make, let me make a theological point here. Um, you see, if you look at this, one Lord, one Spirit, one God. 
In other words, the unity that we have in Christ is a triune unity. Every person of the Trinity is concerned that we be united together as a body of believers. And just like there is unity and yet there is diversity within God himself, so we as believers in Christ are to imitate that unity. Every member of the Trinity is distinct, right? The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, nor the Spirit the Father, or the Son the Father, right? They're all distinct. But they're equal and united in one God. And in the same way, we as believers in Christ are are not the same. We're all distinct. I am not you, and you are not me. Contrary to John Lennon, you know, I am not the Eggman, I am not the walrus, right? We are all distinct. But there ought to be and needs to be because in a spiritual sense there is a unity between us just as there is between the persons of God who are distinct and yet unified into one. And our relationships ought to imitate the relationships that make up the Godhead because we are created, as Genesis says, in whose image? God's. Now, at the risk of wearing this out, um, I want to go back to the center verse of this passage. Verse 3, and draw some application for us about what it means to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First of all, what does it mean to each of us as believers? It means that when we have conflict one with another, that we go to each other face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, and talk it out and resolve it and repent and forgive and forget. Not that we never remember, but that we never bring it up for discussion again. Karen and I, I think I've shared this before, Karen and I have a rule in our marriage that you can't save your chips, okay? Now, we don't play poker, but we borrow that analogy from poker, okay? When you play poker, you get all your chips, you know, and then when you get the right hand, you know, you get your straight flush, you push them all into the middle and say, Ha-ha, <laughs> this is where I take all your money. Okay, and sometimes people do that relationally. They save their chips up until their moment is right, and then, bam, I'm going to hit you with this. Okay, and bring up something way out of the past. And we can't do that to each other. Can't save our chips. You go right now. If the problem is right now, you go right now, and you resolve it. And if the person has sinned, they need to repent. And then you need to forgive. And if someone comes to you and says, you sinned against me, you need to repent where you've sinned, and they need to forgive. And then we need to let it go. And it needs to be in the past. Um, It means when somebody gets mad at us and is rude to us and disrespectful, that we don't respond in kind, but in kindness. means that we are gentle, that we keep our emotions under control, and we respond with gentleness and kindness, that we don't hold grudges or bury resentments, and the reason that we don't is because even small issues, even small issues, if you bury them and don't deal with them, grow into mighty 
for us. Okay, uh, one of my uh, one of my uh, stories that I found interesting one time was a story about a a Texas married couple who over a fight I think it was over whose turn it was to load the dishwasher. Uh, got divorced, and what they did was they took a lumber saw and they cut their house in half together, okay, through the middle. Just, you know, you get the kitchen and those bedrooms, and I get the den and these rooms. And they moved one half house off to the back of the property, and they kept the other half house with the foundation, you know, just kind of open. They just nailed shut the sides. Okay, what happened? Resentment over a small issue split their family. And that can happen. That can happen if we don't deal with one another in love. We can't bury resentments or hold grudges. We, we give each other grace. Why? Because God gives us grace. And if God gives us grace, we can't be turn around and be ungracious, right? That's what the parable of the unforgiving servant is all about. That God forgave you $8 billion and you turned around and choked your fellow servant for 50 bucks. What's wrong with you? Can't do that. Okay? Um, we respond in kindness and we extend grace because we, when we mess up, we hope to receive grace from other people, right? So we extend it to others. What's it mean to us as a local congregation? It means that all of us need all of us all of us, the same all who is part of the family of God, all of us need to be committed to making and maintaining peace. That we can't simply hope that situations will resolve themselves or get better on their own, but when we know that there's a problem, that we go and address it. It means also, as a congregation, that sometimes when there has been sin, that there needs to be discipline. And nobody wants to talk about that, but that's in your Bible. Uh, that sometimes there is a step where sin is unresolvable and unrepented of, where there needs to be discipline. And sometimes that needs to happen. And we as a church need to support that being done, even though it's uncomfortable. It means that we can't simply let people walk away without attempting to resolve the problem with them, uh, not only for them, but for the future of our church means that we all decide to focus on the larger and more significant things that bind us together rather than the smaller and, and less significant things that can put wedges between us. What does it mean to the elders? Now, this is, this is hard stuff right here because this is me and this is these men that I serve with and serve under. Because we are the ones that you have elected to be the spiritual leaders, and we are the ones who someday will stand before God and have to give account for how we maintain the unity of the Spirit in our church. So what does it mean for us? It means, first of all, that everything I just said about what it means for us as individuals and what it means for us as a congregation, that that goes double for us. We have to do that. Because we're the ones who have to give account to God. It means taking the hard steps necessary to deal with uncomfortable issues when they come up. It means that we have to be the ones sometimes to initiate church discipline 
It means always striving to maintain relationships with people and to resolve conflict whenever it's possible to do so. It means that when we are confronted about something that we have done wrong as leaders, that we confess and repent. And so in the spirit of responsibility and repentance, let me be the first one. Okay? It has recently come to my attention through these meetings that we have had with Chuck and with Ron that I have said some things in a sermon, either in a way or in a context, which offended some of you. And I was, in ignorance, sinning against you by so doing. And so let me be the first to, to repent here and to say that I apologize and I seek your forgiveness and your prayers because my actions there cracked the unity of our church and that is something I will have to give account for before God and I'm sorry because I seek your forgiveness on that and I will work to correct it and make sure that it never comes up as an issue again okay now the elders also have something that they would like to say to you so I'd like to have them come up and stand with me up here And we have something that we would like to do as well. And then we'll pray. And are we going to sing after this? Okay, we're going to pray. In the uh, the spirit of 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 exactly what Joe preached about here this morning, Ephesians 4, I want to share with you a a statement here that uh, we, the elders, want to be the first to confess that we've neglected one of of our primary responsibilities, and that is to maintain the unity of the body. Um, We ask for God's forgiveness as well as your forgiveness and your prayers as we seek to correct these omissions. We will seek with uh, God's help to restore the trust of the congregation by following biblical guidelines for promoting godly unity in the body. We will uh, we'll be communicating the biblical concepts and practice of conflict resolution in the next few weeks, and we will strive to apply these great truths to the church uh, for the glory of God. Again, we covet your prayers and forgiveness. We want to make ourselves available to anyone who has unresolved conflicts. Uh, we, uh, we're, I think we're going to have people, uh, if you would, just call the office, get a hold of Jim. He's going to set up uh, and coordinate any meetings with uh, us uh, or a sub-team of the elders to meet with any individuals that have uh, con- un- unresolved conflicts within the, within the body here uh, in the weeks to come. So uh, we want to make that available. Uh, call the office, call Jim if you uh, want to talk to us. We want to we listen. And I think Bill's going to close us with prayer here.